I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. For 12-pack radio, get excited, y'all. Welcome back, everyone, to 12-Pack Radio, your podcast source for Pac-12 football news, your source for Pac-12 gambling advice with William Hills, Max Meyer, and the home of the Beta Rank College Football Statistical Model with Mr. Rob Bowron. Thank you for joining us. We have a special guest. It's Hithliday coming at us from Addicted to Quack in the Quack 12 podcast. We're going to have a full conversation. We're going, we're going there. We're going big fat offensive line. We're talking it finally. I wanted to bring on somebody that knew what they were talking about before we got into the trenches, and Hithliday was happy, happy to oblige. I'm really excited about this. I look forward to these these conversations, particularly now. And so without further ado, Hithliday, what's going on, man? Uh, I'm doing pretty well. Uh, we are recording on Easter Sunday, and uh, I had a nice filling dinner, and I'm ready to for dessert. This is kind of like almost the Thanksgiving game. You know, like after after Thanksgiving dinner, except there's no sports at all. Existing in a universe in which we do not acknowledge the possibility that football will be canceled. We are full steam ahead. Football is a thing. And we're going to talk about it. Absolutely. And to join us in doing so is Mr. Max Meyer from William Hill. What's going on, Max? Not much. A little bummed that uh, USC did not get Zaire Williams today, but at least he stayed in the Pac-12. Where did he end up going? Is it Stanford? Stanford. Oh, we are we are living in a world, Rob, where Arizona is getting out recruited by Stanford and Cal. It's a bad. It's a bad time. As right, well, not not yet, Cal. Yeah, not yet. I guess not yet is the is the key. I mean, when when White King Jones was there for five years, I mean, what are you going to do? Uh, what's going on, Rob? How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, I am excited to talk the trenches and then talk some season win totals here. Uh, this should be fun. Well, Hithliday. I like your videos are and I think the listeners of this podcast are people that are looking for content on what are the X's and O's? Why is my team good? What are the th- well, some of them? I'd say like 80 percent. Let's be fair. Um, but really, I think a smart fan You're suggesting that the other 20 percent are hate listening to find out why they're right to hate their team. Uh, I mean, may- maybe maybe UCLA fans. <laughs> Maybe Arizona fans, but uh, hope springs eternal for almost every other program in the Pac-12, I think. But um, the videos that you do where you're breaking down film, I think, are really enlightening for especially like when you're breaking down other teams, um, because usually you're breaking down Oregon versus, you know, an insert team here. And they've been really instructive on what to look for on other teams. And one of the things that you always bring up is how, you know, the trenches are, are incredibly important, out, not just in this conference, but if you want to compete outside the conference. So do you mind talking about that point? Because you've made it a couple times, and I think it's worth people hearing as we as we go into these offensive lines and why they're so important. Uh, I mean, yes, that's definitely true. I mean, the game, it's a cliche, but every coach will 
will repeat it, that, you know, the game is won and lost in the trenches. And that the skill positions, at which the Pac-12 usually does very well, um, is, it's not when do dressing, it's important. In fact, you know, a, a whole lot of upsets are born on the wings of, you know, skilled players really rising to the occasion and neutralizing the disadvantage that they have in the trenches. But, by and large, I don't know, 80%, 90% of games, uh, you know, you can look at the offensive and defensive line, and if one team has an advantage in both, just it's an easy bet. Um, and so, and it's not easy to do when you're watching live. You know, what happens in the trenches is, uh, you know, happens sort of instantaneously, and uh, you know, the angle of the camera is not really easy to tease it out. And so I, I really do feel like doing film study gives me an advantage in, in, in realizing like what teams are, uh, are, are maybe better or worse than the records indicated i've been uh eaten out for about two years on 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 calling out the, the problems that stanford and utah have had those are two teams that you know have a reputation for being excellent in the trenches and on review and film study uh you know i found that they really weren't and uh you know that that paid off uh for for people who were watching and and reading and i hope that uh, more people do so in the future um the Pac-12 does not uh, – I guess I'll put it this way. Usually when I'm looking at returning units, I, I look at it on two axes, right? You know, the horizontal axis is uh, uh, how well have you recruited, and the vertical axis is how much are you bringing back. And the problem with offensive lines in the Pac-12 is there's nobody in the upper right quadrant. There's nobody who's both recruited – for 2020, who's both recruited really well and – who's returning four or five starters. It's an empty quadrant. Um, and so figuring out who's going to be the best uh, offensive line in the Pac-12 this year, man, it's really up for debate. Um, uh, I think it's going to be an interesting conversation. Max, when you're taking a look at games to bet on or teams to that, that you give an extra boost to, how much do you weigh in the offensive line? Because we talk about it a lot on this podcast, but I'm curious – you know, as you get into the granular and we were talking about games of the year and you were talking about big spots and all that's really important, but how big of a role does the offensive line play into your handicapping? Well, um, there, I, I mean, like, look, I, like I'll go into the games and look at individual, uh, or positional matchups, um, offensive line. I mean, like I can just name like a couple teams, like, uh, like I guess two teams, that I was fading uh, a lot last year when, when they were favorites were Arizona state and Cal just because their offensive lines were a mess. And that real, and I mean, with Cal, I mean, there were a lot of offensive positions that were a mess in general, but I just think that with offensive line play, whether it's uh, penalties that set the offensive line back or negative plays that forces them into second or third and long, it just makes life a lot more difficult. And so it's, it's hard to see these teams, uh, putting up uh, scoring outputs that justify these double digit or even or touchdown or higher spreads. So yeah, no offensive line is is definitely uh, an integral part. And we're opening with Stanford. Let there be no doubt. We are starting with Stanford. <laughs> but before we do, um, Rob, when you're looking at the model, how does the model factor in offensive line? And um, it, it's it like Hippolyte said. Sometimes it's really difficult to see. Um, not only what units are good, but what individual players are good and how strong they fit into the unit as a whole. It's a, it's like the most complicated portion of being a strong football fan. So how do you look at it and how does the model look at it? 
So it doesn't, the model doesn't specifically call out offensive line play. Um, you'd really need positional level data for college football to do that kind of analysis. Uh, you know, so you, in order to get to it, you really have to watch film. Um, but you end up seeing a lot of the results. And what, what is, I, I find interesting is you often, you have teams like say Utah, Stanford, the, you know, the last couple of years that are, that are often able to, I mean, at least last year, Utah was able to cover up for a lot of a very deficient offensive line for a lot of the season. But then when they ran into Oregon and Texas, like they, you know, that, that deficiency really caught up with them. Um, so it's, it is, it is, I, I think you do have to sort of look at it and try to figure out, you know, for the specific matchup in this case, like, should I be fading where the model has this, you know, because, you know, uh, because the offensive line really is not going to do well um, against sort of what the, you know, the opposing unit's going to have there. Um, yeah. I mean, but I mean, to be frank, like, I don't think that there's any way to, to evaluate an offensive line without, without really watching tape. I mean, even, even recruiting rankings, I, I think are, more hit or miss on the lines than they are in other places. Um, you know, I, I think, I think, I think it's just, I, I think it's hard to evaluate linemen. Like, I, you know, like I think that um, that's not to say that, like, I, that's not to say that I think, I mean, I think recruiting rankings are generally accurate and matter. So I'm not one of those people running around <laughs> saying that they're not. Um, but I do think, however, that like once you get in, it really matters coaching, right? Like Stanford's got a bunch of very, I mean, this is true of any position, I guess, but I mean, for offensive line, like you, like a, a you know, a bunch of very highly recruited offensive linemen for Stanford, they don't play particularly well. USC's had this problem in the past too. Um, you know, like coaching really matters and development really matters on the lines, I think. So um, I do think that, um, you know, like it, it is something that you if if you have a good offensive line coach, you can trust them if they see something in a, you know, you know, a three star kid that, you know, a lot of other schools might not be on. If you trust your coach, like it might work out. He can develop that person to play in your scheme. Rob, I, I totally agree with you that um, recruiting rankings, which I am not dismissive of at all, that that the offensive line is definitely the most hit and miss uh, of the recruiting rankings. And the reason is this. There is a reason that most coaches are very reluctant to play freshmen. Uh, you know, the closer to the ball that, that the guy plays, the more reluctant the coach is to play a freshman. And, you know, and, and so recruiting rankings kind of get mixed up where you've got a guy where, you know, his frame is such that if you can wait three years and play him as a junior, he'll be a wrecking ball. But yeah. if you have to play him right away, he's going right. to be liability in a way that like that's not true of wide receivers right like a wide receiver a five star is going to contribute immediately because he's a five star you know there are i've seen a whole lot of blue chip offensive linemen who are pushed into service too early and you know before they've been able to man, you know manage their weight and, and the other things that you need to do it's not just an offensive line coach although i agree with you there the offensive line coach is very important it's also a strength conditioning thing that a lot of guys come yeah. out of high school with bad weight but it's like if you can manage that and if you've got your conveyor belt of uh linemen working you know really well so that you're churning them through and playing guys when they're ready to play then you can definitely get away with a well cultivated line of three stars oregon's offensive line that destroyed the pac-12 in 2019 was a bunch of three stars um and they were you know wrecking stuff whereas you know as you mentioned usc and stanford came in with all the talent in the world and well we saw how that worked out yeah 
Hithliday, before we go individually into each team, which programs overall, not just this year, but have a track record of developing uh, talent, whether it's three stars or five star players, and consistently having good offensive line play? Um, well, this is the Pac-12. <laughs> so what? What two teams? No. <laughs> um, well, listen, I, I, I'm an Oregon fan. If anybody doesn't know that, so take this with a grain of salt, if you will. I think that Oregon has over multiple coaching staffs between Steve Greatwood, who just who was at Cal and just retired it this year, um, and then uh, Alex Mirabal, Mario Cristobal uh, in the in, in the post Mark Helfrich regime, um, done an excellent job. Uh, I think that. Uh, there are a couple of excellent offensive line coaches in the Pac-12. I don't, who I don't think have been given enough time to work. So um, Jim Mahalchuk, who's at yeah. Oregon State, yeah. uh, is excellent. Uh, he's the raw material that he is getting, and the time that he's been there is not enough for him to produce it, uh, you know, on the field yet. But uh, I, I'm a believer in him. Um, I think that Justin Fry, the Boston College offensive line coach that UCLA got, who is actually technically their offensive coordinator now, uh, although I believe that Chip Kelly is still calling the play, so I think that's a title thing. Anyway, Justin Fry um, is, as far as I can tell, an excellent offensive line coach. We'll talk about UCLA in a minute. Um, they've, they've had some interesting issues. Um, <laughs> and, and then, you know, the real head-scratcher in the Pac-12 is um, – is Jim Harding at Utah, who you ask me one week and I'll tell you he's a great offensive line coach. And you ask me the next week and I'll tell you he's been, uh, you know, not cranking out the quality of lines that Utah should be expecting, given the reputation of that program turning, you know, three stars into gold. Um, I, I really don't have a good answer for you on, on Jim Harding. Um, and then that's kind of it. I have big question marks about all these other offensive line coaches. Um, Stanford used to be a great program uh, at churning out offensive lines. And then um, uh, Mike Bloomgren went to Rice and they have Kevin Carberry now. And I think the verdict's in on that guy that he's not great. I, I'm not in love with Scott Huff at Washington. I am not in love with Tim Drevno at Michigan. Angus McClure, who's moved from UCLA to Cal, is a recruiter. He's not an offensive line coach. I don't know who... Kyle Devan at Arizona is, and you guys can tell me. Uh, yeah, I, I honestly have big question marks about the offensive line coaches at just about every Pac-12 school. I don't love saying that, but I think it's true. Well, let's talk about Stanford because it's the, I think it's the most starkest look into what happens when your offensive line doesn't perform where it should and when you're basing your offensive system off of said offensive line. And they quickly switched to that air raid uh, like halfway through the season a few years ago, and that was a fun offense to watch. But Hithliday, I think the first time you were on 12-pack radio, you were you had brought up the point, I think we were two weeks in, and you basically said, look, Stanford can't run block, and this is a problem. And lo and behold, it was. So when you take a look at the team now, they return Walker Little, who is a him and Foster. Uh, I think it's Sarrell. It's either Sorrell or Sarrell. I It's Sorrell or Sarrell. I, yeah, I don't know either. Yeah, but both those guys were like five five stars with like you know with pluses after them coming into that program. They were part of a really interesting recruiting class that uh, David Shaw had put together. They return. Walker Little was injured last year. He returns. Drew Dahlman was kind of a middle-of-the-road type of guy, but now he is a senior. And, and you know, <laughs> I can never tell with Stanford players because senior might mean they've been there for six years or that means they've been there for four. Um, 
But after that, you have a lot of highly rated players that have left the program or players that haven't been able to crack a, frankly, um, disappointing unit last year. What's going on with Stanford? What do you think about them uh, when you're taking a look at what they're playing on the field in 2020? You know, if I had not watched a second of film of Stanford in the last two years um, and just look what they're returning on paper, you know, five-star Walker Little at left tackle, five-star Foster Sorrell at uh, at right tackle, uh, Drew Dahlman, who I think is a pretty good center. I, I don't have any problems with Drew Dahlman. Um, and, and, you know, even acknowledging that it's weird that they lost uh, their guards, uh, Deborah Hamilton and Henry Haddis, um, as well as one of the guys who rotated in, uh um, Dylan Powell, um, you know, I would say, hey, look, they're also returning Walter Rouse and Barrett Miller and Branson Bragg and all those guys got, a, you know, those guys were all freshmen last year, but they got a ton of, you know, time due to all the injury situation. Um, I would look at that group on paper and say, this is my number one um, offensive line in the Pac-12. Um, does anybody on this podcast think that Stanford's going to have the number one offensive line in the Pac-12 next year? Nope. No, no. Um, it's, I mean, it's remarkable. Um, and you know, I, I I don't have a good answer to your, to, to your question as you phrased it, uh, Brian, like, I really don't know what's going on. I think part of it is having lost their offensive line coach and replaced it with a guy that, like I said, I think the verdict is in on Kevin Carberry. I think he's a dud. Um, I think part of it is whatever was going on with their strength and conditioning program. I mean, maybe it's just straight up karma, but while Shannon Turley was the head, uh, was the strength and conditioning coach at Stanford, they had practically no injuries at all. And then the instant he leaves, suddenly that, you know, all the injuries start piling up like, like they were overdue. Um, uh, you know, but you know what, I, like you said, even last year before the injuries started piling up, you know, I was seeing problems with the ways that those guys were blocking and, you know, that, they looked like they they looked simultaneously like they were technique issues, like guys who were not in the right position, guys who were miscommunicating, guys who didn't know what was going on. It looked like strength problems, like they were just getting run over. Like I put on Twitter because it was fun to do so, uh, videos of three-star Oregon offensive linemen running over five-star Stanford, uh, or excuse me, three-star Oregon defensive linemen simply running over, just overpowering, like, I am stronger than you. I can lift more weights than you can. Overpowering five-star Stanford offensive linemen. Um, I, you know, it's a, it's difficult for me to say whether that's a talent misevaluation or a bust or they don't know how the weights work in the weight room um, or what. But, I mean, there's no arguing with the results that those guys got crushed every time they were on the field with an even halfway competent defensive line. When you take a look at who's coming in too, and I don't know if you're going to see these guys on the field this year, but the recruiting continues to happen uh, on the offensive trenches uh, on the side of the offensive trench for Stanford. I mean, they have the number two center, the number 34 uh, tackle, the number four tackle, the number 36 tackle, the number five center, the number 37 tackle. Like, these are all four-star guys that are going to be cycling through the program next year and the year after. And I think if you see them on the field now, that might be worrisome, like you mentioned, unless they are just monsters already going into the program. But at the end of the day, you take a look at this offensive line and 
Max, where would you rank Stanford's O-line? Uh, and, and we'll go through like the top teams. I want to start with Stanford because they're the most confusing. I think it's you like, and we talked about this last podcast where we were going through all the skill positions on offense and Stanford is in the top three and in, in all of them. And then you look on paper at their offensive line, you go, my goodness, top, this top five, uh, top five in all of them. Oh, top five. Running, yeah. Um, and then you take a look at the offensive line, you go, oh my gosh, like, this this on paper looks like it's a good line too. This offense is going to be legit, um, but the but what you see on paper is different from what reality is. So where where are they ranked on your on your front, Max? So Stanford is just such an interesting case because they have the talent. The results have been so shoddy over the past few years, but there like like what um they was saying uh, at the beginning of the podcast, there isn't a, an offensive line that's return that's like returning a bunch of talent that was like recruited highly and Stanford I mean like Stanford they don't like they have little they have the right tackle like those are two cornerstone guys like I I wouldn't put them I mean for for me Oregon's still number one I think Stanford for me uh I'd I'd have them like fourth or fifth what do you think Rob yeah I mean I might even I mean I might even slot them in at like six i mean that's Ooh. sounds harsh but i mean <laughs> like he's i mean and i i don't like i mean sanford stinks at run blocking i mean they graded out at 115 in effective rush last year in beta rank um but i will say like for the most part they're 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 not great at pass you know pass protection but they're okay at it um you know like they would have been a lot more trouble because kj costello can get a little in a little trouble when he has to shuffle his feet if he feels pressure um and stanford would have been a lot of, a world of hurt offensively if costello was under constant pressure um that said i mean that's like damning with faint praise like yeah hey, you're okay at pass blocking uh, <laughs> so there's 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 some positives uh to look at here i mean i think that i mean there are definitely some worse worse units in in the pac 12 um than stanford and i mean it and it does help because i mean the the units that i mean there were some units that are just are not returning you know even the top units that you might put in the pac 12 are just not returning a lot coming uh coming into this year so i mean the the distance i guess you could say between them and the top line you know in the pac 12 is smaller but um yeah it's just there's a lot of question marks for me for with, with stanford we might use them as a proxy as we go through all the other teams. Would you rather have this or Stanford's or offensive line? <laughs> if you plug Stanford's offensive line talent into, you know, maybe three or four different, uh, you know, coaching staffs uh, and, and offenses that were run by more confident, you know, modern offensive minds than Tavita Pritchard and David Shaw, I would be pretty comfortable with that talent. But, you know, as, as we've all said, uh, you know, yeah, it's just astonishing how how much they've underperformed, and and I have no reason to believe they're going to stop underperforming, and every reason to believe they're going to continue. Uh, the way that I looked at it is, I um, I broke the entire Pac-12 up into three clusters of four, um, based on uh, how well they're recruiting. So my my top four are basically they recruited, which would really be tier two. The, the, you know, tier one is empty. Tier two is uh, recruited really well, not returning. Uh, much to be confident. So Stanford is on the bottom of that list. So therefore they get number four for me. And then my, my next tranche is uh, they're returning a lot, but I don't love the talent. And then the bottom group is uh, (laughs) there are problems here. (laughs) Well, 
One more question for you about Stanford Hithliday, and that has to do with Cameron Scarlett. Because last year, I just wasn't a fan of his. He was always kind of that backup that didn't get the job done. He gets the full job. I think he actually did get 1,000 yards, but, man, he really, really <laughs> grinded to get he, those yards. He, he got 1,000 yards if you include receiving yards. He, he had 840 on the ground. Yeah, oh, that was why. Now, was he good? I mean, like – I. I mean, you see, you see their film more than I did. I just didn't think he was a good running back, and they didn't have a good offensive line. But I wasn't certain. Um, I'm curious what you thought about him. Yeah, I think he's a replacement value running back. Uh, he was fine. He he actually kind of surprised me when he was playing Oregon. Uh, how many yards after contact he was getting? Uh, you know, he was he was trying. Um, I I don't have any complaints about Cam Scarlett. I, I I guess I'll put it this way. I don't think that Cam Scarlett was the guy who was holding that team back. Um, I, I don't think if they switched to the more exciting running back that they have, who is Austin Jones, who I do think has a bright future. I I don't think if they pulled the ripcord and switched to Jones in the middle of the season that they would suddenly jump in rushing performance and tack on another you know 500 yards. So. I don't think you can put it in Scarlet's feet. Uh, well, I was going to say, I, I'm impressed that you found a positive about Stanford from that Stanford-Oregon game, at least on the offensive <laughs> side. No, I mean, it was the, we actually just, here's what we've been doing in the Quack 12 podcast to, uh, to to not kill time. That's not a good way to put it. Um, <laughs> to to entertain and educate our, our loyal listeners. Um, we've been watching uh, all 14 of Oregon's um, games from 2019 are up on the Pac-12 network, the, the play cut the 60 minute games. And so we've been recording, uh, you know, live commentary of the game. So you can sync up the podcast in the video, assuming you have access to the Pac-12 network video, which not everybody does, sadly. Um, and so the most recent one that we did was Stanford. And and actually we kept saying like, damn, there's Scarlet getting another like two yards after contact. Way to go, buddy. You know, sort of like almost by myself perversely rooting for him because he was the only guy <laughs> who was getting anything done against Oregon's defense in that game. So I'm having a hard time hating on him. Way to go, buddy. should mention, too, if you haven't subscribed to the Quack 12 podcast, you should. If you're an Oregon fan, you absolutely should. If you're a Pac-12 fan, you, you should, and here's why. Hithliday and Adam have gone through and just done a really good job of bringing on guests and talking Pac-12 football. So, um, like, I th- and I think you guys look at it from a different prism that we, than we do, and, and that's a good thing. So if you want really smart commentary on Pac-12 football as we move through the offseason, another good podcast to definitely subscribe to. Um, Max, you had mentioned that Oregon was likely your number one in terms of their offensive line. Why is that? Uh, well, because they have the best uh, offensive linemen in the country. And recruiting-wise, like, yes, they, they do lose four starters from last year. But recruiting-wise, I, I think that not – like, I think that there will be maybe, like, some growing pains at the beginning of the year, but they're still very talented. And as, as – I mean, the strong offensive line coach, strong uh, strength and conditioning coach. So at least with the coaching staff, like, that's the um, staff that I have the most faith that they can break in uh, new offensive linemen. But, yeah, but having having Sewell anchor uh, on the blind side, I mean, that it, he, he really is one of the best players in, in all of college football. And there is no other Pac-12 school that can say that they have someone like that. Yeah, Hithliday, obviously Oregon loses four of their starting offensive linemen. But it seems like it was a program that was – what drives me nuts is when coaches don't play the backups, even whether they're winning or they're not winning and getting people time on the field. My impression was that Oregon was doing that. And in addition to that, you still have some really strong blue chip players on that line. Would you rank Oregon uh, first? And what do you think about their chances this coming year? Uh, I mean, I have them behind USC just not to be a 
jerk. Um, but uh, Max, that's a very persuasive case. Boy, you're you're really uh, convincing me here. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I agree with you, Bryant, that uh, I am frustrated when teams don't play their backup offensive linemen during garbage time because, as a film reviewer, I want to see that. And Oregon's been pretty good about it. They've been pretty good about blowing out opponents uh, in the last two years, and they've been pretty good about putting these guys in. And I get to watch them, and yeah. The, there for real um I, I don't i honestly don't have any questions about uh or I, I am even though that's a, a position a bigger replacement than anything else for oregon like i'm i'm really not concerned about it like as max said returning to left tackle the most important position uh also bringing back stephen jones who will almost certainly be the right tackle um you're listen guys your jaw is going to drop when you see steven jones take the field um and, and he's not new either he's actually been he, he's played nine games over the last two years uh he was starting against auburn um he's six seven three forty nine he moves like a cat he's been in the program for three years like I, i'm not kidding guys like they're there are no, there's no doubt in my mind that oregon's gonna have the best two offensive tackles in the league and if you have that, you're like three quarters of the way home, right? Because the rest of it is just filling in the guards. And Oregon's recruited really well. You know, I think the center is going to be Alex Forsyth or maybe the Juco TJ Bass. Uh, I think they're pretty well set at uh, the guard positions, Jonah Tuanau and uh, Malasala Umavailaulu. Um, they've got a couple of extra guys, uh, Dawson Jeremillo and Chris Randazzo, who also came in the 2018 class, who are uh, – I think they're both four stars or one's a four star and one's a high three star um, who, you know, been in the program for a long time been doing, you know, lots of that body transformation that I've been talking about. I mean, it, it's a deep group. Um, I, I'm just not worried about it. Like, even though they're, you know, on paper, they're replacing a ton and, and I should be quaking in my boots. Like, yeah, I, I think they're going to be road grading people, especially by the end of the year. Yeah. And you've talked about the shift and I think, this last year marked the year where I think anybody covering college football from a national standpoint understood, oh, they're not running the Chip Kelly offense anymore. <laughs> like This is a different yeah. program. And and it seems like it's only taken one or two years to get to move from the leaner, faster offensive lineman to the just the big, I am going to pancake you yesterday, today and tomorrow. Um, is that is that been the case or is there still some transformation happening or are they already there? Oh, no, that. Oh. It's for 2020. It's all out. All of the Steve Greatwood guys. I mean, hats off to them. But all all of those dudes who graduated. It's actually not just four or five. I would say it's five to six because you should include Brady Aiello in that group. Um, all those dudes are, are Steve Greatwood guys, and they're the you know the the smaller, faster zone blockers. You know, around 295 to 310. And everybody that I'm talking about. I mean, the lightest one of them is 315. The, you know, the shortest one of them is 64. Like there yeah it is a total shift and they're all you know this is the year you're going to see it uh in 2020 and, and i mean there's really i'm telling you there's not a offensive line group in the world that looks like rob do you have oregon one that would be the first question and second who do you have second and how far of a drop do you think they are from oregon if you have them at the top so i mean i have i do have oregon at number one um but i don't think like the i i think it is when you're replacing four starters, mileage may vary. Um, and that, that, so I don't think that the distance 
where that I would say that I had Oregon versus a lot of the Pac-12 offensive line units last year. Like, I think the distance has shrunk. Now, Oregon come, can come out and we could say, oh, <clears throat> they didn't miss a beat. Um, I'm, I'm just not sure until I see all these guys play together on the field. Um, but I do have, I have a lot of faith in their strength and conditioning program and, and what they're doing with recruiting and, and, and coaching. So, yeah, I, I think it's fair to have them at number one. And, you know, the, the, the one guy they have coming back might be the best player in college football. So that's that helps. Um, and I do agree on, on, on USC at two. And I <laughs> USC's had some problems. I know. Isn't that crazy? Um, I was really I, struck. I, um, but I also think that like what they do now works with what they have i mean i don't like I, the, with what they were doing when when t martin was calling plays like that put a lot of strain on their sort of limited offensive line coaching and development if you will um and i think when they were trying to run the ball and it turned out that they didn't have good coaching about run blocking that did not work well at all um i think what they have coming back um and and some of this is covered up by the fact that I think um, Slovis is just lightning in a bottle and will get the ball out. Um, you know, like I, I just, I, I think these guys really work. I think they have a lot of, um, they've got a lot of talent. They are bringing back, they're bringing back four starters. I mean, there's a lot to like there. Um, and, and these guys were, these guys were for the most part, pretty good. Um you know, for most of the season. I mean, they had some struggles. I mean, Slovis took some shot. I mean, every, every USC quarterback that played last season did take some hits. Um, so you do have some concerns there. Um, it's hard to gauge the run because they did, they did run the ball. USC, if you look at their split in the number of rushing attempts versus passing attempts, it doesn't look as, 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 as big as if you look at the yards, like they put up a lot more yards throwing the ball than they did running the ball. Um, so I do think that it is true that they, I think they still struggle, um, you know, with run blocking and running the football, but I don't know if it matters as much because they've become so good throwing the football. Um, I, I like, I like this group. Um, and I, I agree with Hippolyte with them at number two. Max, you're a uh, USC alum. You take a look at the names that we have here and similar to, I think Oregon's recruited a little bit better on the offensive line, but there's still a tremendous number of blue chip players that are going to be on the field or are backing them up. Elijah Vera Tucker, you have Andrew Voorhees, who comes back from an injury, Jalen McKenzie, Liam Jennings, Brent Nielsen. I mean, these are all players that were pretty highly rated. I think there's one three-star like among those names. And then you have four or five players behind them. What was the biggest problem that you saw when you were watching USC last year? And are they going to be able to um, – because really their offensive line, I think is the biggest hindrance to USC winning the PAC 12 uh, South and then winning the PAC 12 title. And I'm just curious, like, are they going to be able to shore this up next year? And what was the biggest problems that you saw? Well, um, admittedly when, when I was doing this, I was a little nervous having USC too, because I thought that I'd be called as a Homer. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad we're in agreement there. Um, with USC, there would just be like, there would be certain games where the offensive line was just overpowered by a three-man rush. I mean, the worst uh, instance of that was the BYU game last year, where uh, and BYU was able to sit in the coverage with with eight guys and and, and rush three, and they'd still get home uh, to Slovis, which and it, it was very frustrating. Um, but I mean, pass protection wise, like Elijah or for the most part, like Elijah Vera Tucker, I thought was very impressive um, in, in pass protection. Uh, run blocking. I, I feel like there, um, there, they could be better in that area. 
Um, but granted, I mean, I, I, I think that they are going to run the ball a little bit more this year just because at times the splits were, were so extreme last year. And that I, I think that that um, limited USC's ceiling a little bit. Like, I, I know that they, they finished top 10 overall, but I, I, I think uh, running, the, running the ball um, a little more would have helped there too. But I, I think that they're – I just – I'm nervous to be optimistic about the USC offensive line because I've been there before and I've seen them uh, disappoint with so many holding penalties and, and sacks given up. But I think that this year there's, especially just with, with how Graham Harrell uh, has completely reshaped the offense. I, I think, I think Rob made a really strong point, like with the offense that they're running now, I think it is better suited uh, for these offensive linemen. And I mean, and, I, and Tim Drevno, he might not be one of the better offensive line coaches in the conference, but he's still an upgrade from what USC's had recently with like Bob Connolly and Neil Callaway. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm optimistic, but cautiously optimistic with this group. Hifflade, is the coaching change there? Um, th- did that strike any at any points to USC for you? And any last words on the Trojans? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I agree with Max that, that Drevno was an upgrade from Callaway. Um, the, uh, I don't know if it's how big of an upgrade it is. I, I agree as well that, like, you know, it, it was definitely the case in 2018, and, like, the core of the offensive line in 2020 is going to be pretty much the same as it was over the previous two years. So, you know, it's still relevant. You know, it was the reason when they went 5-7 and seven was the offensive line stunk. And, and I kind of think that, like, bad habits that were bred into them at that time have kind of, probably stuck with them and the, these guys are are you know it's kind of a wasted uh, group of talent unfortunately uh, you know he, tim Drevno could be the greatest offensive line coach in the world he's not but even if he were like he'd have a hard time i think picking this group up and making him uh live up to to their recruiting rankings um i uh rob said the returning four starters i think that's true if depending on how you count it because andrew Voorhees was a starter but then he was injured for almost all of last year um the way that I count it is that here, here's what gives me pause about USC is that they're losing both of their tackles. They're definitely losing Austin Jackson. He went early to the draft and they're losing Drew Richmond to graduation, uh, which means they're bringing back um, five guys who have played on the offensive line. Elijah Vera Tucker, uh, the center, Brett Nealon, who I don't love. He gets run over a lot. Jalen McKenzie, who I think is going to slide over one of the tackle positions because when Richmond would be out, he would do that in 2019. Uh, Liam Jimmins, who's the back of right guard, and Andrew Voorhees, who I mentioned a minute ago was injured for most of 2019, but who was fine in 2018. So that's why I've got them at the top, is that you've got five guys with a ton of experience who are coming back, and they're you know highly recruited, and who knows, Tim Drevno, you know, could get the light switch flipped and you know hey presto there you go um i'm not over brimming with confidence that's that's going to happen on the other hand i think that rob is right that of all uh, the offenses in the pac 12 i think that kind of you know as long as the offensive line doesn't completely collapse and buys slovis at least a second and a half to make the pass to a phenomenal wide receiver group even without michael Pittman. um that, you know, the structure of USC's offense under Graham Harrell, you know, it's three short routes and one deep route to keep the defense honest. Um, the offensive line doesn't have to be spectacular in pass blocking in order for that to happen. And 
while I agree with some of the other comments here that like strategically, I think that uh, USC has not been running the ball as much as they should. And they're probably not doing that for ideological reasons, which are dumb um, that I think their offense is going to be just fine as long as they have Slovis and as long as they have those receivers. I don't think the offensive line is going to get them into a lot of trouble. Now, I think they're probably going to be in several games next year against teams like Alabama and Notre Dame and Oregon, uh, in which, like, I, I mean, I actually disagree with something that you said, Ryan, Bryant, which was that you thought the offensive line was the biggest thing that was holding back in 2019. I don't think that's the case. I think the biggest thing that was holding them back in 2019 was the coaching staff. I, I think they lack it's going to be difficult to explain in a podcast, but I think they lack strategic awareness. They don't understand how defenses are trying to control them, uh, how defenses are trying to let them do certain things that they think they want to do uh, that will ultimately get them in trouble. And it was crystal clear in the Oregon game. Like, uh, you know, if you weren't a believer in Andy Avalos before that, having watched the USC Oregon game, the way that he strategically just owned Graham Harrell's play calling uh, was masterful. Um and whenever your team is in a position where your greatest strength is simultaneously something that other coaches can control uh, and wrestle you down using, like, I think you're in trouble. So that, uh, I don't know how to put a bow on that, but <laughs> that, that's how I'm looking at USC. I think they can simultaneously have the best offensive line, the Pac-12, that it doesn't really matter. And I'm not going to pick them to win the conference. Well, it speaks a lot of the conference where we said USC has a massive waste of talent, and that's the number two offensive line in the conference this year. <laughs> Good times, everyone. Um, well, Hipletti, where do you want to go next? Um, because you had we had Oregon, USC, and then we had Stanford at the bottom of that second tier. Who's the third, well, third team in there? The, uh, the team that I have slotted in is number three, and, and the fourth team in my you know top tranche of uh, good recruits but not returning a lot is uh, the University of Washington Seattle um, they are again let me reiterate I think there are certain positions that losing versus retaining are more important than others so I give a premium to returning the tackles returning the center and I kind of don't care about the left and right guard well Washington's the opposite uh, they're losing their left tackle, Trey Adams, their right tackle, Jared Hilbers, their center, uh, Nick Harris. They're bringing back Luke Wattenberg and Jackson Kirtland, the two guards, and one of them is worth a damn. Um, they uh, also lose a backup, Henry Roberts. Uh, they're bringing back two guys who were playing in the middle of the year due to injuries, uh, Matteo Mele and uh, Henry Bainavalu, uh, and a couple other guys who, who they've recruited very well, which is why they get you know the third spot on, on my rankings. I, it's almost too too many to name the uh, Kern and uh, oh gosh, there's a ton of these guys. Um, uh, Ale, um, Bulo, uh, Fautano. Um, there, there's a bunch. They've recruited very well at the position. It's pretty young. Uh, they haven't played a ton of these guys. They're, they're sort of a donut hole in the ranking. Like all of their juniors and seniors are guys who played uh, last year and everybody else are, are freshmen. Um, so they may be in trouble if they get an injury or two. Um, just kind of, you know, we'll have to see if that happens, you know, cross your fingers that it doesn't. But like, you know, that's the position that they're in. They have a lot of talent. Uh, it's kind of not in the right places. I, I don't know who they're going to slide over to tackle. Um, and there might be some depth problems. But in the Pac-12, that's still good enough to get you number three. <laughs> uh, Rob, when you take a look at Washington's offensive line, 
Uh, I, I was just so excited about Trey Adams. Then he got injured, and then Washington was fine last year. And, I mean, like, you can't put that all on, like, the shoulders of the left tackle. But I, I, I think he was, in my mind, a an avatar of the team in general, where I was really excited about Washington the last couple of years. And, and they've been pretty good, not great. And here we are with a revamped offensive line, a new offensive coordinator, and a new quarterback. And if you're a Washington fan, I mean, you could you can make this – cup half full if you if you really want because they have recruited well like Hithliday said not just at the offensive line but elsewhere um, but my goodness I, I just assume that there's got to be I mean unless that unless that offense is 100% revamped there's probably going to be a drop-off I'm assuming I don't know what do you think yeah and I I want to just I, I'm not madly in love with Scott Huff their offensive line coach 100%. Um, like I mean I uh I mean, I just want to call out like Miles Gaskin is an after contact hero. Um, <laughs> like, and and, and I, part of the reason last year I was kind of bummed for Washington when uh, Richard Newman got hurt was because uh, he was really good after contact, <laughs> um, which is something behind that offensive line you've kind of needed to be um, in the same way that like. Uh, part of the reason that Utah's offense ran well was because Zach Moss is really good after contact. Um, and, and, and that sort of, I guess you could say, like gives me a little bit of pause. There's a lot of talent. Washington has recruited really well. Um, you know, and I don't expect, I don't expect that we're going to, when we talk about, you know, the Washington offensive line, that they're going to be like falling off and be, you know, a liability for the team or anything like that. And that's not necessarily like, I mean, I, I, I think that you can – I don't think you would look at, like, the, you know, some of the other teams that you would maybe talk about putting ahead of them. Um, uh, that I have bigger questions about them, even though they have more returning talent – or more returning more returning players. Um, there are talent questions there for, like, Arizona or Cal um, that I, I don't necessarily know that you can overcome. But, I, I mean, I think Washington, you could solidly – like, they'll be solid. Um they might not be great. And then if, I mean, as, as has happened, I mean, if they run into a very, very good defensive line, I mean, they could be in a lot of trouble. Um, although, I mean, I will say like, I thought they had a pretty, I, I thought I will say, I think Washington's offensive line had a pretty good game last year against Oregon. Um, and when, and what was one of the, over the year turned out to be one of the worst games for the Oregon defense. Uh, and, and, and I was, I was impressed with the Washington offensive line against Utah. Because That's true. I mean, Utah, Utah, Utah's defensive, Utah's defensive line in a lot of ways no showed in that game too. Yeah, but um, actually, so I I wanted to ask uh, Hippo Day about this because I actually had a different number three, and I wanted to get your thoughts on this. Uh, I was actually going to go same state, but I'm I I wanted to do Washington. Or I had Washington State in there just because they return a few starters. Uh, including uh, their tackle uh, Abraham Lucas, who, I'm, I'm, I, at least from what I've been reading, is uh, going to be one of the better tackles in the conference. And yeah. la- and last year, uh, they were third in sa- in sack rate. And granted, I mean, a, a, um, air raid definitely plays a part in it. But the offensive Washington State has been uh, churning out some talented offensive linemen. I mean, the the best case being Andre Dillard, who was drafted in the first round. Uh, in, in this past NFL draft. And so I'm optimistic about the uh, Cougs offensive line this year. Uh, I'm not. Um, the, here's the reason why uh, it's a scheme switch. The Yeah. Uh, 
and, and here's the relevant and not just the sort of automatic, you know, oh, it's a scheme switch. So therefore they will be 15% less productive. Just, you know, pencil that in. Uh, what I mean is that the way that Mike Leach recruited offensive linemen, I don't think is going to be conducive to the way the run and shoot operates. Um, because offensive linemen from Mike Leach don't have to run block. They're not mobile at all. He recruits battleships. He recruits dudes who are enormous and uh, stationary. They're, if they were quarterbacks, they'd be Judd's machines. And um, so while I do like uh, Lucas and I like their re- returning right guard, um, Joss Watson, um, and I, I kind of like actually Cade Beresford, um, the, the freshman that they had uh, playing a little bit uh, last year. Um, the A couple things. Uh, well, I'll get back to that point in a second because there's two other important things that I should say first. First, uh, they're losing Valencia in their center, uh, my Goa. Um, I think those are big losses. I, I am not uh, wild about Brian Green snapping the ball. Um, their left tackle, who they're bringing back, who was the left guard in 2018 um, and moved over to left tackle in 2019, his name is Liam Ryan. He was a disaster. Um, just teams were feasting on uh, Wazoo's left left side um so bringing him back no plus so they've got to replace the they they either do or should replace the entire left side of their line that's no good because both of their quarterbacks are going to be right-handed um the uh and then the last thing is going back to the point that i was making uh earlier the run and shoot even though there are some similarities to the to the air raid and like philosophically at the high level when it comes down to the nitty-gritty of how the offensive line operates they could not be more different um except for maybe if they were a zone run team like a like a zone option team which i don't think they're going to be uh but the run and shoot has more elements of that than it does with the air raid and i think this is going to be a disaster um i I really do i I think that uh their quarterback's going to get eaten alive because that's the way that you stop the run and shoot. Anybody who's played Hawaii can tell you. Um, anybody who's had uh, personal conversations with Mouse Davis uh, can tell you that, which I have. He happens to be a neighbor of mine. Weirdly, he lives in Portland. As a oh. uh, it's it's cra- Mouse Davis is a fascinating Yeah. I, I highly recommend having a beer with him. Um, he's a Portland State a Vikings broadcaster now because he was he was the coach at Portland State for like five years in the late 70s. Um, uh, anyway... It, Anybody who can tell you, you don't have to be Mouse Davis to, to tell you the way that you stop the run and shoot is that you identify which way the quarterback is rolling and you, and you light them up. And every defense is going to be doing that. And I don't think these offensive linemen have the ability to roll and protect the way that, that offense is going to need. Well, that's good to know. <laughs> I was about to, like, that, that definitely changed my whole outlook on Washington State. <laughs> <laughs> Wait till we get to the win totals. <laughs> uh, hey, let's let's get into the next half of the Pac-12 uh, right after this. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. All right, we're back. 
and it's Eat Your Vegetables Day here at 12-Pack Radio. We're talking offensive line, the most important part of a nutritious diet, and we're getting down now past level uh, tier two in Hithliday's tiers here, which is maybe some teams that might have some talent or a little bit of recruiting. I'm assuming, actually, I'm, I'm putting words in your mouth for your own tier. So what, what is tier three here at Hithliday, and who's at the top of it? Uh, I have Cal on the top of tier three, which makes them my number five team. As Max said earlier, uh, it was a mess last year. It was a mess in 2018 too. Um, and it shouldn't have been, they were returning a ton. It was weird. They were returning a ton in 2018. They were returning a ton in 2019, both years, you know, not great. Um, they replaced their offensive line coach used to be Steve Greatwood, who was the longtime Oregon. Uh, great and and a hero of mine uh, they're replacing him with ucla's longtime offensive line coach angus mcclure who's a recruiter he's not much of an offensive line coach and he asked any ucla fan um I, the reason why they top it out for me is that they're i mean they're replacing they're returning every starter right like will craig uh the left tackle is legit like he, he's a pretty good dude um i think that uh Kerhan, who's been their right tackle since the triassic era uh is uh, not half bad either um and, and so you know like i was saying um with some other groups I, I put a premium on returning the tackles and they do uh and those are the you know the, the real players uh the, the guys in the middle i don't love but uh kind of to push back a little bit against max um who was saying he's putting cal on the bottom uh for how badly their line was underperforming i think a lot of that was fueled by injuries um you know they were sort of rushed into playing like matthew Sindrick was a redshirt freshman they probably they played him earlier than they wanted to uh um came tower was definitely was a freshman who was definitely rushed in early brandon mellow was a freshman he was rushed in early um so I think there's some upside here. I think there's some depth here. Um, yes, they're not the most talented group in the world, um, but it's pretty well battle tested. They know what they have, and you know, uh, you know, I don't want to say the sky's the limit, but compared to the rest of the groups in this quadrant, um, I have the most confidence that they'll be okay. And they got a first name last name guy in Powtassi Powtassi. And I love, I love a good first name, last name player. And I hope he does great things, beautiful things in Berkeley. Uh, Rob, Cal was a mess last year on the offensive line. And when we were, I was going through the returning starters, like Hippolyte mentioned, I'm like, oh my gosh, they return all of them. And we've been bullish, I think, uh, opti- uh, cautiously bullish, I think, on Cal throughout the podcast in terms of what they can be next year. And them returning their entire offensive line was another another box to check for um, possibly, you know, rating them pretty high in the win totals as we get to that. Uh, I, I mean, yeah, there's a there's there's a lot coming back. I mean, I, I agree that I think injuries played a role. Um, I, I have serious questions about McClure. <laughs> like he's a he's a lights out recruiter. Um but his reputation as an actual position coach is, is, has already been hit on several times by play of the, uh, on the spot is, I mean, it is not good um, at all. And the, the, his time in Nevada was the last two years was really, I mean, their, their offense, their offensive line was really bad. Um, you know, like that, that, that Nevada team, the, the one year, not last year, in 19, the, the team nosedived because the defense fell off. But the year before, Nevada was pretty decent, but it was literally all the defense. Um, and their offense has been terrible. 
Um, and they were running air raid and they have not, you have not had to, as Ipple alluded to, like you don't have to be like a great offensive line coach in the air raid and they stunk. Um, that, that is my concern there is that sort of, it, it is kind of like, uh, cause as we have seen with, with Stanford, when Bloomgren left, like it was like turning off a light, like they really quickly could not run block. Um, I just I'm interested to see McClure in in year one, um, and if the guys have like really good habits because they're all veterans um, that they can hold over, or um, you know, yeah, what what does it look like I guess in in year one and then going forward under McClure? That's that's my only real concern. Like I, I think that they have the, they have the talent to be good, um, and they're bringing almost everyone back. So like there's a there, there's a lot to like there uh, from a personnel perspective. Well, here's a question for you, Hithliday, on Cal, because we did running backs. Uh, so each week we've been do- previewing the Pac-12, uh, you know, all the cores of like each each team and each position, and we did running back running backs. And I remember watching Chris Brown at Cal going, "Well, that guy's pretty good," um, but I wasn't sure was that run was that run blocking or was that just him on his own? Because when we went back oh, and no, looked that's... at his stats i mean 900 yards and eight touchdowns and i don't think he really got started until i mean in terms of being productive until really halfway through the season no that's that's brown and also the other guy uh, marcel dancy and um boy i I tell you you would not know it to look at their stats because i think they're they were both 4.4 yards per carry which is you know not a stellar number at all but i mean you watch them on film you're like god damn if that guy had a competent you know if that guy had a quality offensive you know, you'd be talking to the NFL. Yeah, I, I really like those backs. Um, it's just unfortunate that you can't separate out, you know, s- separate out the two. Um, I think my 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 perspective on Cal's offensive line, the reason that I have ranked highly as they are, uh, re- remembering that ordinal in a confined league <laughs> means little, uh, is you know what you're getting. And this is the same thing for all of, you know, Cal's returning a ton of production, you know, you know what you're getting and assuming the guys stay healthy, assuming the quarterback in particular stays healthy, like, look, they're just returning. It's just last year's offense, you know? And if you thought that last year's offense was, uh, was good enough to, you know, get them the wins they could, if they stayed healthy, they probably get more. Um, you know what? 2020 is probably going to be the same. Uh, so good for them. I'm sort of a closet Cal fan, and since all three of their coaches are are Oregon players, you know, I'll be rooting for them in 11 games out of the year. <laughs> Max, where do you want to go from here? Uh, well, yeah, well, I, I well, I was gonna say I agree with Brown, and like I think Rob said this uh, earlier in the podcast, how he was saying that Zach Moss was, despite Utah's porous offensive line, that Moss was able to hide some of those deficiencies, and I, I think Brown can do that this year with Cal and if Cal's offensive line uh, takes a step forward, then that's even better because I, yeah, where I feel like we're all very optimistic on Cal this year, but um, we'll see. I, I think another team, well, I, even though they lose the left side of their offensive line, I was blown away by the job that Oregon state did last season uh, with, with that group. And they have one of the better offensive line coaches in the conference, just given like the, the, the uh, level of recruits that they bring in there and, and then the production that they're getting uh, up front. And then what, like, what, what do you see from Oregon State this year? Um, well, first of all, I, I agree with you uh, that Jim Halchick is a great offensive line coach. I agree with you that I was 
pleasantly surprised by how well uh, Oregon's offensive line was playing, uh, all things considered. Um, I think that that was a product of the fact that Blake Brendel and uh, Gus Lavaca and Clay Cordesco were, I believe, I believe all four of those dudes were redshirt seniors or, or two of them were redshirt seniors and one was a true senior. Uh, and I believe they were four-year starters. And it's like you put in four years on the line, eventually you're going to be competent. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> And here's – but unfortunately all three of those guys are departing. And, uh, you know, the two guys who were starters that bring back uh, Kibunum and, and Kipper I was wild about um, – uh, and then another guy who got a lot of rotation, he was a sophomore last year, is uh, Onesimus Clark. Um, I was wild about him. Nathan Eldridge, who I believe came with uh, Mahalchuk from Arizona, yeah. I, or a year later, I forget exactly what the timeline for that looks like. Um, I was expecting more production out of him, and we haven't seen it yet. So, you know, I, this would probably be his year to shine if he ever will. So we'll have to see there. Um you know, so bringing back two starters plus two, I think, you know, competent, if unspectacular backups um, sh- should position them well. But like talent's not there. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I just, you know, I don't I don't, don't want to hate my my in-state rivals uh, that much. But like I haven't ranked 11th because there's no beef. And I think what production they got was not, I want to call it a flash in the pan. That's not accurate. In fact, it's the opposite of the case. But I mean, it was something that they were only going to get one year out of those dudes. And that was last year. It's a bummer because in the past under Gary Anderson and then under um, Mike Riley, it seemed like every recruiting class Oregon State had, they'd get at least one blue chip offensive linemen every other class and a, and a couple other like decent three stars. And I was just looking back at their recruiting the last couple of years and with a good offensive line coach, I mean, uh, Arizona, like their coach came from Arizona. He did a really good job with not a lot. And so it was, it was a good fit for him to go to Oregon state with not a lot, <laughs> but I was hoping that they would improve on that recruiting. They haven't quite done that yet, Rob. I don't know. What do you think about or- uh, Oregon state? I, mean, I, lo- I like the coach a lot. I, I mean, I thought Mahalchik did a really good job at Arizona. Um, and I thought he did a good job at Cal before that, uh, you know, with what he had, uh, with what he had there. I just, I, I agree on like, they're, they're losing a lot. Um, Oregon state, I don't think is quite there. They're not, they're not there where these guys have spent enough time in Smith system where I think they've had enough time to recruit. Um, I think Mahalchuk will put together a serviceable line. Um, but I think it could we might not really see that. I mean, unless injuries totally derail it, I don't think we'll maybe see that until like the back half of the season. I was really bummed. They've done a really good job, Oregon State, at bringing in high-level transfers and didn't bring in anybody, um, I think, outside like of a Portland State player. And goodness, I don't know if he's good. You should ask your neighbor. uh... Corbin Sorensen, I actually, well, I shouldn't tell that story. Yes, from Portland State. Is he good? He's a good guy. (laughs) <laughs> nice. I want to hear that story later. Um, yeah, it just seems like I was really hoping that they would bring in some new, uh, some players from these other teams. Because where a team like Arizona or UCLA, I guess UCLA's had a couple transfers, but it just seems like there's certain teams in the Pac-12 that don't do a good job bringing in transfers. Where it's kind of an open market now, and Oregon State didn't do that on that front. I mean, I would put Arizona or even Colorado's offensive line ahead of Oregon State's. Um, I don't know about Utah. I don't know if we want to go there next, but uh, where do you want to go, Hithliday? 
Uh, we can talk Utah next. They're, they're actually my number six team, so that would make sense for me. Um, I, just to put a bow on on Oregon State, like uh, the other thing about Oregon State is I really like Jonathan Smith as a coach, and in particular, what I like about him is that. Um, Please do not construe what I'm about to say as uh, maligning the air raid or the triple option or the run and shoot or any of the other like uh, interesting offensive systems as being gimmicks at all. I enjoy watching those things. They're legitimate ways to win. That's not how Jonathan Smith is trying to leverage a, a difficult to recruit to place. He's playing football like he's an NFL coach, you know, like he's running an NFL offense like we're going to do this, you know, don't read too much into the phrase that I'm about to use, but we're going to do this the right way, you know, and, and good for him. Like I, I dig it. Um, here's the problem. If you don't have the offensive line talent to do that, um, it, it can go downhill real fast because that it's premised on a high quality offensive line. If he doesn't have the talent for it, and I kind of don't think he does, then you could see a real downtick in production um, uh, for Oregon state this year, which is unfortunate because they were fun to watch last year. Um, okay, so that was Oregon State. Let's talk about Utah. Um, well, they're they're returning four starters. That's good, right? Huzzah! <laughs> uh, and and a JUCO All American. Oh yeah, uh, it, who totally covered himself in glory when he was in against Washington for four drives. Um, actually, listeners, I have to level with you. I'm being sarcastic. Uh, I I I was not wild about Utah's offensive line. Um, the uh, Oleseni, the Juco that we are talking about. Actually, it's weird to call him an All-American because I think he's British. Um, the, <laughs> uh, yeah, it, they had one decent um, offensive line player last year, which is Darren Paulo, their left tackle, and they, he's the guy they're losing. Um, I, I'm not, I'm not real confident in this group, um, even though they're returning a lot. Uh, I, I kind of think the the cake is baked for them, um, and. Uh, you know, I think I think Utah's going to have to wait for these guys to cycle out. And they've been recruiting better over the last cycle. It looks like the 2021 class is going to look pretty well. But as I was saying at the top of the podcast, like it takes a while for good offensive line recruiting to work into your system and to pay benefits. So, I you know I think Utah's going to have a kind of rough uh, coming down um, after the their 2019 season, and I think it might last until you know, 22 or 23. Well, here's, here's a question for you. And then I'll throw it to Rob after your answer hit the day is that I guess the half glass or the, you know, glasses half full case would be, um, Simi Moola was a freshman. Uh, Braden Daniels was a freshman this past year. Nick Ford was a sophomore. So it was a young group. And then you have some players that, uh, like for the most part, I trust Utah to recruit, uh, in the trenches. Well, and sometimes they don't come to fruition, but most of the time they do. And that coaching staff has been pretty solid at developing talent over time. So I don't know, like, I guess, you know, is there a case where when you return four starters, you know, you had a lot of new underclassmen playing and now you have a year in the system and the same coaching um, and a system that tends to develop that talent. Like, is there, is there a scenario where Utah fans can be optimistic about their line? Uh, sure. Anything's possible. Uh, <laughs> I, I think the cap here is the talent. Like, you're right that uh, Daniels and Ford and Zawala um, were underclassmen. Here was their 247 recruiting ranking. 83-64, 82-47, 84-49, 84-49, 84-49, 84-49, 84-49, 84-49, 84-49, 84-49, 84-49, 84-49, 84-49, 84-49, 84-49, 84-49, 84-49, 84
8356. Uh, Maya, who's the backup, was 8503. Like, these are all low three stars. Um, the, the, they are actually uh, lower than some of the, the offensive line recruiting rankings that you sort of snicker at in the Pac-12. Uh, they just haven't recruited well. Uh, and... And, and while I think it's true that a, an excellent developmental system, you know, can bring up, you know, lower ranked players to be solid performers. Um, first of all, I think that that's exactly what Jim Harding has been trying to do. And yet he's been bumping up against the glass ceiling uh, of that talent level. And second of all, I think we all know how far well-developed, less talented players will take you. They will take you to 11 wins and three really bad losses. Okay. What about you, Rob? What do you think about Utah? I mean, so, so there's there's some positives to like about that I to take away from the offensive line last year. Um, I mean, I thought they were they were okay on interior run blocking, but they I mean, they stunk in pass blocking. Um, and some of the stuff, I mean, if they were if they were having trouble um running the football, uh, you know, Ludwig could do some of it. I mean, he, at, at times it almost looks like with the, with his handoffs that he's almost running like a, he can almost incorporate versions of like the flex bone almost in there. Um, you know, with the, the, some, the tight ends even had some, some rushes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's very true. You know, to try, to try to get to the, you know, but to try, you know, when you're doing that, you're often trying to get to the outside and take advantage of the fact that your receivers might be pretty good run blockers versus the secondary. Um, and I, I think Utah's receivers were actually pretty good at that. Um, but they, I mean, they stunk at pass blocking last season. Um, you know, Huntley took Huntley, I, I think was better than people give him credit for last year, partly because of, you know, the wide receiver core that he had and the offensive line that was a bit of a sieve that, that is, I, I guess you could say my, my sort of concern this year because, um, they might throw the ball more this year. Um, given what they have coming back talent wise at the, at the QB position and, you know, the real barrenness, I suppose, of, of what they have coming back in a lot of other places. Um, I actually, I, I like Arizona's offensive line more than Utah's. Um, and they both have their deficiencies. Like Arizona was a little better pass blocking. Um, and they, they should look even better not having Galil Tate sitting back there holding the ball, unable to make decisions. <laughs> Running backwards out of bounds, yeah. I mean, just I mean, just holding, holding, holding the football, uh, which works when you're like, you know, sort of works when you have Rich Rod and a dominant run game uh, in front of you, uh, you know, holding the football, looking for the deep shot downfield. But like, I mean, I thought Josh McCauley did a pretty good job. I mean, Arizona did, I mean, they have struggled and you could see last year, um, you know, when they, when their, their outside zone didn't work as well, um, you know, with, with their, with their run game, they kind of struggled running the football, but I, I do think that the, they graded out pretty well passing their return for, um, I would have them slightly ahead of Utah, but it's not, it's not a lot. I mean, it's like a, the thing, like they, they, each line does things differently. Like I am interested to see like this Utah line without Zach Moss, um, you know, they're, they're, you know, knocking people down. So we'll, um, I'm not, I'm not super jazzed about the Utah line, but it's always better. It's always better to return, return talent, like return players than not. Um, 
you know, like even if you're like, unless you're, unless you're losing some really bad players. Um, and I, I would say like, I wouldn't have Utah like last season, I wouldn't have them maybe even in the top half of the conference for, for their offensive line play last year. But um, I would say that I think that like, you know, you could expect those guys, they maybe got thrown into the fire a little early. Um, you know, they, they could develop. I mean, there is reason for optimism if you're a Utah fan. And two other players to keep a lookout for. I mean, Satao Alamea was the number 13 guard of 2019. Hunter Lotulele is still there. He was the number 23 guard of 2018. So there's like, but they didn't crack the, (laughs) they didn't crack the uh, pretty rough starting five this past year. So anyway, so a couple names to keep out, uh, look out for. Um, like you mentioned, Hitladay, the recruiting on the offensive line has not been impressive, but there have been a couple players that may may see the field sooner rather than later, uh, just based on pedigree. But again, I didn't I didn't watch the film on either of them, so I don't know. Have, did, did you see any promise in some of the younger guys? But uh, yeah, no, I, I I watched about half of Utah's season. Um, however, I did not I, I didn't see Laumea or Latulele at all. I the, the only I saw those five starters. I saw a little bit of uh, Maya and Oleseni. Washington game, but that was it. Um, the, the, as far as I can tell, that they're the the, uh, the the new guys didn't get any game reps at all. Good times in Salt Lake, <laughs> beautiful city by the way, though. I love, I love it out there and a cool stadium. Max, where do you want to go next? Well, I mean, since you guys brought up Arizona, I mean, I just think we we can go with the Wildcats next, and with Arizona and Utah and Cal, I mean. Just one thing that we've been talking on previous podcasts about is returning experience this season with spring football non-existent. It's going to be a huge advantage, especially when you add in returning offensive line coach and returning offensive coordinator. These are going to be some big advantages uh, that Arizona and, and Utah have. I mean, well, Cal is interesting just because they have Musgrave instead of Baldwin. So I'm interested to see what happens there, uh, even though I, I think overall that that switch is a, is a, is a pretty big upgrade. But with Arizona and Utah, with with all that experience and and uh, coaching continue, uh, and the coaches coming back as well, I, I just think that that can only be positive. Yeah, Rob, you watched a lot of Arizona football, unfortunately, this past year. <laughs> what did you think of the offensive line? I mean, I thought they were. I was like, they, you, you, they had many of the problems that they've had. I mean, I don't think even the year before um, that they were great run blocking on the interior. Um, I think that Rich Rod's wide receivers were pretty good, and so out at, at downfield blocking, and so I think outside zone worked better for Arizona, um, and that made Arizona look like a more dominant rush team. I mean, they were a pretty dominant rush team because outside zone worked so well, but um, it may have given people the impression that Arizona had some like wildly dominant offensive line, like they they didn't. Um, well, what I think I'm impressed. Yes. Like. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But I, I mean, like, and they had, I mean, of course, they Arizona led the, you know, Pac-12 in rushing under Rich Rod. They continued that in someone's first year. But I think last year, when you know most of those Rich Rod wide receivers, who I had lots of bones to pick on, you know, how they did in, um, you know, catching footballs and running routes, um, they they were good at downfield run blocking. Um, the the run the rush offense really fell off, but like. I mean, they did a really, I got to say, like, the offensive line did a really good job keeping, I mean, because I, I don't, I, like, I realize that there are a lot of people out there that um, maybe don't watch a lot of Arizona or Pac-12 football, and they're like, what Arizona did to Kevin, or, you know, what Kevin Sumlin did to Khalil Tate is a crime, and I'm like, well, I mean, he didn't run Rich Rod's offense is the crime. 
<laughs> but like watching Khalil Tate, you know, as we have, like try to run anything close to a reasonably conventional offense, especially throwing the ball. It's just, it's been painful. And, it, you know, the, but the line, you, you really can't knock the line for the time that they've given him because he's often had way more time than he deserves. <laughs> and, and I think that is to their, I think that's to their credit. And it's something that like, it's not going to show up in the statute. Like it's not going to show up the statute that like Khalil Tate had all day, wasn't pressured and then threw an impossibly stupid pass into like triple coverage. like that. Um, but I, I, th- I think the line actually has graded out pretty well there. They return for, I, I think McCauley, you know, is probably their best player. Um, there but there's there's some other guys that i mean again like you sort of when you look at it you think like yeah with some development they were pretty excited to get to van you know i i liked I i'm spacing the guy's name because he went back to coaching in the pros um their their offensive line coach the year before oh yeah he was um, good uh, was yeah. he, he was really yeah he was pretty good they really liked Devan. um it's hard to like it's hard to it's hard to after one year. It's hard to knock him too hard. I mean, I thought they were like I said. I thought they were good in pass protection. Um, I did think that I think they really struggled uh, on running the football, and I think that they're going to have to improve there. Um, you know, if they if they are going to improve this year, because um, I I I think if they can keep Ganell clean, um, that this is going to be a different offense than people were. You know, a lot of because a lot of people. Um, there are a lot of people who are really down on Arizona coming into this year. And a lot of people that for reasons that I do not understand, expect like Colorado and UCLA to be better than Arizona. I I would say like, if you have this line coming back with this many guys and Ganell, like this offense could be interesting. What do you think of today? Uh, I agree. Actually, the last time I was on the podcast back in January, um, Max asked a question like, you know, oh, if if all of these Pac-12 teams were hating on, like who who benefits? Uh, and you know, could it be Arizona? You know, the team that didn't make a bowl last year, and I was like scoffed at that notion. And and then I sort of immediately felt guilty about it uh, after reviewing. You know, like actually, this team is returning a ton of production uh, from the skilled players. Uh, they're upgrading a quarterback from Tate to Gannell. Uh, there's continuity in the offensive coaching staff. Uh, and the other personnel dump that they did uh, that will probably improve them is they lost Marcel Yates. Uh, <laughs> and they lost him for Paul Rhodes, who, like, destroyed UCLA's super talented defensive backs. Uh, I don't understand what that's about. But, like, you can't get worse than Marcel Yates. So, uh, yeah, I'm actually pretty intrigued by Arizona next year. Um, and then the other thing is the offensive line. Like, uh, you know, there, I, I have them a spot or two lower than Utah. Um, the, but in the same, you know, group of like returning a lot, but there's not a lot of talent there. Um, that, uh, it, the reason is there's even less talent for Arizona than there was for Utah. Like, don't maybe read out Josh McCauley's two for seven composite score. It's, uh, depressing. Um, and then, you know, Robert Conjol was a walk on, right? Yeah. Uh, like, uh, and, and, but here's the thing. It, there were a ton of injuries last year. I mean, just a ridiculous number of injuries last year. I don't think there was any offensive line in the Pac-12 that was more injured than Arizona's last year. The silver line, that was a ton of dudes played, right? Uh, Laya played. Uh, Conjol McCauley mentioned already. Creason's the only guy that they're uh, losing. Uh, Barola played. Fears played. Jordan Morgan. Stephen Bailey. Like, all these guys are coming back. And, 
as far as I'm aware. I believe they're losing Bryson Kane. I think he was injured and he's decided to retire from football. Uh, do, you, do you guys actually know the answer to that question? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah, um, I saw that. I saw that article. I didn't realize Jamari Joyner was hurt too. That's that's not good. <laughs> uh, yeah, I kind of like Joyner. He's he's had an interesting uh, career trajectory. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, <laughs> battle tested is one way to put Arizona's offensive line. Um, and, and I guess I'll put it this way: if it was a bad offensive line last year, and they still produced what they produced uh, with a quarterback who spent half his time running backwards and out of bounds. Um, and a defense that was doing the opposite of favors for them, uh, then, you know, I don't have any reason to believe that they're going to do worse in 2020. And I have every reason to believe they're going to do better. So, yeah, sure. Okay. Well, I mean, if you look, too, I mean, like here, like Donovan Lay, they're going to move him inside to guard. I mean, he was... Wait, you're kidding. Right, I mean, yeah, of course. He's he's a little overmatched to tackle. Um, And... And, and Morgan is a guy that they really like um, that he was in. He got, you know, he played and got injured and um, so they need to you see him, but he had really taken, they felt like he had taken hold of that left tackle spot in practice. Um, so there's, there's reason, some reason to be optimism, you know, optimistic, even uh, that they, you know, about, um, you know, replacing Kane. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, it's a ton of experience and, uh, and, it's just hard to overstate how badly injured they were. I mean, like every yeah. drive, they were putting in new guys. Um, and like, I, I feel, I don't know if they're actually going to be able to do this. I know nothing about the van. Um, but I feel like this is a situation where if they take that clay uh, and mold it into, you know, okay, here are five starters and, and, and they're going to stay healthy. I swear to God. And they're going to, you know, play every snap of 12 games. Like, yeah, they could actually do something. Um, or at the very least, they could not be a liability and um, yeah. could do his own things. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, th- there are offensive lines in this conference that I think like, uh, you know, oh, that's the limitation on how far this team goes. Um, I, I don't think that's true of Arizona. I think the bottlenecks probably lay elsewhere. One of the lines that I wanted to bring up was Colorado. Because I had initially assumed that their line was bad. And then, and we have a decent number of Colorado fans that listen to this podcast, that follow us on Twitter. And I was surprised by the, um, and like polite pushback. It wasn't uh, like, so thanks Colorado fans. But it it was more like, hey, take a closer look at the line. And I had watched a few more Colorado games and thought, thought, "Eh, this is, this is like a, a pretty decent unit, all things considered. Um, now they lose a, uh, they lose their left tackle and their center and, um, and, and they were good. So I'm curious, Seth Lede, what you think about Colorado going in this coming year? Um, I think that Colorado fans, uh, who are accustomed to seeing their offensive line play in the last several years before 2019, uh, would look at the 2019, uh, offensive line performance and stand up and salute. Uh, they had every reason to do so. They performed much better than they did even a year earlier. Um, that doesn't mean they were a good offensive line. I'm sorry, fans. Uh, and yes, they are, uh, they're losing two of their best three in hand, right? And line up, um, they're the, the other guy they're bringing back. However, the right tackle, William Sherman, I actually think is legitimately a pretty good player. Um, but, uh, you know, I, am sorry. I've been watching, uh, Kerry coach and Colby Purcell and Casey Roddick for three years now. And, uh, or two years in the case of some of those guys. Uh, and, 
you know, uh, sorry, talent ceiling. Like, uh, you know, I'm going to sound like a broken record for the like the last six teams in the Pac-12, but I'll like, yeah, they're at their ceiling, and their ceiling is getting run over by competent offense or defensive lines. Max, you're you. We've talked about Colorado's number being probably really low <laughs> on the season win total. Do, do you see the same thing with their offensive line? Uh, I mean, with cars, like I'm, I, I have to be on. Like <laughs> I was going to rely on Hippolyte's analysis with their offensive <laughs> line. Like I, like it, like I didn't I, like they're all, watching them play last year. Like their offensive line, it didn't really like sway me one way or another. Like I didn't think, oh, this is an atrocious offensive line. Like from what I was seeing from a, a Cal or an Arizona State. But I wasn't blown away by it either. Yeah, you you're just you're just horrified by their defense, <laughs> and I think that well, sucked all yeah, the oxygen well, out. I mean, well, co- co- the thing about Colorado is that they were in, they were extremely lucky last year with turnovers um, on both, especially with fumble luck on on both sides, and they still were um, just uh, like they still underperformed. Uh, on offense in particular with all the talent they had and, and the defense, like we were really low on them from the beginning and now they're switching uh, coaching staffs. Uh, they still have uh, Tyson summer as, as defensive coordinator. And that was some, we were all really down on. Uh, yeah. I mean, Colorado, they are, they're for sure going to have the lowest uh, win total uh, Vegas uh, win total in the conference. And I'd be shocked if they don't finish with the worst record in the Pac-12 this year. Rob, if you had to decide between ASU's offensive line and UCLA's offensive line, who are you taking? Ooh, whoa. Uh, let me let me ponder real quick. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> this is, I mean, I think they're both so bad. Um, I mean, I do I do agree that like getting the I mean that Fry getting the guy that used to coach at the. Um, uh, the Boston College offensive line, which is, I mean, they, they were good running the football, um, might lead to some improvement. Um, and I, I, like, I, I don't, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it's going to matter that much for either team because I, I don't have that much faith in either of those teams' quarterbacks. And I know ASU fans who just send all the hate mail my way about, yeah, and it's about, right, because even though I agree with Rob. It's totally Rob brainwashed me. And forced me <laughs> oh, really? I I forced you into being like, huh? Like Jay Daniels isn't all that accurate. Well, I, uh, you know, we're we're you know Max is the only person on this podcast uh, you know associated with a team that that didn't lose to Arizona State last year, and so that you know they get to wave the flag. But like, no nah, man. Like, I think that Jay Daniels is a lot. I think that he has a lot yeah. of upside, and and it's entirely possible that he begins to realize it and actually play like a quarterback in 2020. He was not playing like a quarterback in 2019. He was a gunslinger uh, with a couple of very good receivers, most of which he loses, although they were replacing them with some extraordinarily talented true freshmen. Who knows if they're going to see the field or not? I'm not sure. Uh, and you know, uh, and and threw up a couple bombs, uh, and and were fortunate in some games, and were not fortunate in other games, which is. That's Arizona's record ever since John Cooper left for Ohio State in the 80s. Uh, you know, they always finish with five or six losses. Um, and, and it repeats again. Uh, I, however, do not have Rob's hesitation about whether UCLA or ASU has a, a worse offensive line. It is ASU by a long shot. Um, UCLA, I actually have uh, in, in that 
you know, third tier of like returning a lot. I'm not wild about the talent. Um, the, the, I, in particular, I like your left tackle, uh, Sean Ryan. Um, yeah, I like him. And, and more to the point, um, even though, you know, they're losing a couple of guys, they're losing guys in the middle of the line, uh, Boss Tagalo and Christophani Murray. I'm talking about UCLA here. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I thought that, I thought the Tagalo and Murray were the worst of their offensive linemen. Um, they're they're bringing back their left tackle, Sean Ryan. They're bringing back Jake Burton, who I think is a fine uh, right tackle. Um, they've got some depth. Actually, they were rotating a third guy at tackle, Alec Anderson, who was also he was a redshirt freshman. He was okay. Uh, you know, good chance he improves. As you said, I like Justin Fry, uh, the offensive line coach. You know, they've got to replace some some guards in the middle. Uh, I didn't really think that UCLA's problem. I, here's the here's the issue with assessing UCLA's offensive line versus ASU's offensive line is that if you look at their offensive output, ASU's you know knocks your socks off, and UCLA's does not. Um, uh, you know that that's because Chip Kelly, the incompetent version, is now coaching at UCLA. Like the offensive line was not really the bottleneck for UCLA. Um, and like I said, they they return their tackles. They have some decent talent. ASU, none of that can be said. They are, uh, you know, they're losing one of their tackles in Stephen Miller. Um, they're uh, losing their best offensive lineman, Cole Cabral. They're losing probably their next best, Alex Lasoya, although some people would argue that Donovan West, who they are returning, is better. Uh, they bring back uh, Ladarius Henderson. Um, they bring back uh, Kate Cote, who I believe got his sixth year. Uh, good for him. Uh, they they're losing a rotational guy in Zach Robertson, another rotational guy in Roy Hemsley. Like it's just, you know, the, they're bringing back two or three guys. Uh, they're not at the key positions. They're not really their best dudes. Uh, and it was a disaster area, you know, it, it, unlike many of the teams that we have talked about where I've said, yeah, the offensive line wasn't great, but it wasn't the bottleneck for their offense. Like it was the bottleneck for Arizona States. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't know how they're going to construct their offensive line based on who they're returning. I mean, literally, there's only three guys, you know, who are returning. All the backups are gone. They have to bring in two transfers. Uh, Henry Haddis, who couldn't cut it at Stanford, and uh, a guy from who couldn't cut it at uh, Texas A&M. Um, Deesh. Deesh. Yeah. Deesh, yeah. Uh, if they take an injury, they're done. Um, yeah. Yeah. This is my last place in the Pac-12, and I don't have any doubts about it either. It's, yeah, like what Hippolyte was saying with um, some of the games last year, like that Arizona State-Sacramento State game, I've never I've never <laughs> seen an FCS team just absolutely punk a Pac-12 team <laughs> in the trenches like that. And then the following game where Arizona State miraculously won in East Lansing, that Michigan State defensive line just feasted on on as like the beginning of the season when cabral was injured it wasn't it was an absolute train wreck and i think it does speak to asu's ability to win that game in michigan state and i don't know if it speaks more poorly of uh it speaks of, to Jaden daniels it certainly doesn't speak to rob likens he was you know one of the four offenses or coordinators yeah. at 12 who was fired uh incidentally i went four for four you know i i reviewed 22 of the 24 uh coordinators in the pac-12 i missed ucla for obvious reasons um and and it was like here are the four who ought to be fired actually i said six should be fired if you include uh because i think that stanford ought to burn their house down but they're never going to do that so you can't hold that against me 
uh, of the 20 dudes who could be fired, four of them were, and they were the four who I wanted to be fired, uh, which was Bush Hamden, the Washington offensive coordinator, Rob Likens, the Arizona State offensive coordinator, Clancy Pendergast, the USC defensive coordinator, and Marcel Yates, the Arizona defensive coordinator. And, you know, boy, uh, you know, for all the armchair quarterbacks out there uh, in the Pac-12 fans, like, you know, man, you know, prove it. Prove you know what you're talking about. <laughs> no, the uh, only person that came back that should have been fired was Jerry Azanaro. Like uh, most Pac- most Pac-12 teams, I mean, beyond like the Stanford, the obvious Stanford one, most Pac-12 teams that needed to clean house did last season. Yeah, uh, yeah you know, totally. Um, although I will also say that those four guys I was calling for their firing at the end of 2018 as well. So all those coaches waited a year longer than they ought to have. But uh, at, at any rate, like it, it ain't Rob Likens at Arizona state. It wasn't the offensive line at Arizona state. It was, you know, Jaden Daniels is a miraculously talented scrambler. Um, and they had some very talented uh, wide receivers, although Rob Likens didn't know how to use them except for when they were playing Oregon. God damn it. But uh uh, you know, the, you know that's the other problem with, with Arizona State for all the Arizona State fans who are like, well, we're bringing back Jaden Daniels, and so therefore it's the playoffs or bust. It's like, guys, have you not Oof. looked at the rest of your returning production? Like losing Eno Benjamin, losing Brandon Ayuk, losing Kyle Williams, you know, uh, losing almost everybody on the offensive line. Not like the offensive line was great. Like, yeah, man, like there's Jaden Daniels. If he turns out to be a real, you know, quarterback as opposed to just a gunslinger, like his shoulders aren't that broad. Okay, he can't carry the entire team on his back. <laughs> All right, well, let, let's we're, we've gone an hour and thirty on on offensive line, which which is great. Um, it is the, you know, it's the foundation of the team and really important for win totals and really important for whether or not your team's going to be good. Stick with us later this week. We're going to go through all of the Pac-12 win totals with Hithliday and Rob and Max. And I think it's going to be a great conversation. We have three and a half people on this podcast. You can make up your mind on who the half one is uh, in regards to who knows the Pac-12. And uh, and I think it'll be a really good conversation as we move forward. So um, stay tuned this coming week and uh, or stay tuned later in this week. And we'll continue the conversation. <laughs>